Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. Yes, I am David the Christian, and I'm here with a, my other co-host, David Paulman. What's up, David? How's it going, Russell? Hey, and I'm here with Kevin Smith of Questioning Christian. How you doing, Kevin? You're still muted, Kevin. Ah, here we go. Yes, doing well. Thank you. Yes, I'm also here with Mac Attack. How you doing, Mac? Uh, welcome back, man. Good. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks. Awesome, awesome. And Dale Glover with Real Seekers Ministries. Everybody knows Dale. What's up, Dale? Hey, David. Oh, thanks for having me on. Hey, man. Thanks for being here, man. I, I was glad that you could make it. You are a, a voice of reason in this hectic world sometimes. Uh, well, I try. <laughs> I do what I can. So. <laughs> All right. So, guys, um, I'll start with you, David. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the to the to the you know our audience real quick, and then uh, we'll just go in the same order that I just said hi to you guys. And... All right. Yeah. So uh, I've been on Skeptic Seekers. Uh, I think. We'll one other time, uh, just discussing intelligent design with uh, David Johnson. But for those who don't know, uh, I co-host Proselytize or Apostatize with David Russell, and I run the YouTube Apologetics Ministry, Faith Because of Reason. All right, Kevin. Hi, I'm Kevin Smith. Um, I am a former pastor in grad school. I did study some philosophy. I'm interested in this conversation. And um yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, Mac. All right. Um, I really don't have like a website or anything to uh, push, but my name is Charlie, actually. But uh, you can call me Mac. I'm glad to be here. I've been, I think this is the third time now. I'm on Skeptics and Seekers and uh, glad to be part of this conversation. Awesome. Dale. Awesome. Yeah, so, so I'm Dale um, from Real Seeker Ministries, as David mentioned. So my website is realseekerministries.wordpress.com. Um, or you can just check out me on YouTube at Real Seekers YouTube channel. Um, yeah, and I'm glad to be back. This is probably my thousandth time on SS. <laughs> That's yeah, a bit yeah, of an exaggeration. You've been here for a long time, man. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're going to be discussing the Christian response to epistemology. Uh, there was a show last week, three hours long because of David Johnson. Nah, I'm just joking. But no, we're not going to be that long, I don't think, guys. But we are going to discuss epistemology. From our perspective, we are going to uh, try to do our best to answer uh, the skeptics and their show last week. And we're going to just talk about epistemology and from a Christian perspective. But first, I, I want to go over some groundwork, and I'm going to leave that to David Paulman to actually talk about uh, epistemology in general, the history, and so forth. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, Christian epistemology has got a bit of an interesting history, but uh, really for most of it, so like just say from when the, the inception of Christianity in um, – the first century, right up until probably um, 1900s, the traditional view was uh, just 
the, the classical evidentialist view, uh, we might call classical foundationalism. And classical foundationalism is this idea that all of our beliefs come in two sorts. So we've got these inferential beliefs, which are beliefs that we infer from other beliefs, but you realize that that kind of begins to start a regress, right? Because if I'm inferring one belief from another belief, from another belief, from another belief, uh, where does that end, right? So there's got to be another sort of belief, which uh, the foundationalist identifies as a non-inferential belief. And so this is a belief that serves as a foundation for the entire epistemic chain, all the beliefs you know, that go right up to the top, uh, and they all get their justification from these initial non-inferentially justified beliefs. And so that's metaphorically, that's a foundation, right? It serves as a foundation for your entire epistemology. And uh, the evidentialism is just basically how you make those inferences, right? On the basis of evidence, you uh, just work your way up to your top level beliefs. And so Christians uh, believe you could get uh, belief in God, belief in the resurrection of Christ, belief in the uh, divine inspiration of the Bible, that you could get to all of that uh, just, you know, from the ground up. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that's a pretty commonsensical way of looking at uh, epistemology. But a lot of that got uh, thrown into turmoil in the um, 1900s, uh, especially the mid 1900s, uh, we had this attack come on the traditional definition of knowledge from Edmund Gettier, right? He published uh, his paper uh, is, uh, I think it was called, is uh, justified true belief knowledge. Uh, and that was pretty much until that point, right back until the time of Plato, the traditional definition of knowledge had been justified true belief. But Gettier argued in uh, 63 that this is not the case because uh, he gave examples where it seemed like you could have justified true beliefs, uh, but not have knowledge, right? Uh, for example, think about like, if you look at a clock and it says that it's 10.15 and it really is 10.15, you form the belief that it's 10.15, then you've got a justified true belief that it's 10.15, uh, but then say you all of a sudden discovered that the clock was broken, well, then, you know, something's wrong with it, something's wrong with that, even though you had a justified true belief belief. And so this is what become known as the Gettier problem. And so that, you know, basically opened up everything for this uh, huge fallout in epistemology that, you know, started in the 60s and 70s and carries through right to the present day. So classical evidentialism has fallen, you know, out of the, not, not out of the picture, it's still here, but it's um, fallen into disfavor. So the uh, replacements were phenomenal conservatism, which was basically a, a weaker version of classical foundationalism, but uh, said that like you didn't need certainty at the bottom level and stuff, that you could, it's okay if something seems true to you. And then from there, uh, you also had reformed epistemology, guys like Alvin Plantinga brought that into the picture, which is like, all right, well, uh, what if our beliefs are really justified by having come about through a reliable process? Well, then if I believe in God and that belief came about through a reliable process, then that belief is justified or it's warranted, even if I have no arguments and no evidence for that belief. Uh, and then additionally, you had Van Til and Bonson bring in this idea of presuppositionalism. They thought evidentialism is not, you know, giving the word of God a high enough place. Uh, it's appealing to, you know, people's belief in autonomy, self-sufficiency, what have you, and that's that's just wrong. So uh, we're not going to go there. We're going to presuppose that the Bible is true. And so those are kind of the four big positions that are out there. You've got classical evidentialism, phenomenal conservatism, uh, reformed epistemology, and um, presuppositionalism. All right.
All right. Uh, anybody else want to comment on that real quick before I move to the first question and stuff like that? Dale, I, I know you're a reformed epistemology there, so w you got anything to say on that? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I, I do like uh, Elvin Plantinga's notion of warrant in, in answering the Gettier problem and that sort of thing. So I, I think that knowledge is a warranted true belief. So, so yeah, I would probably take that third strategy, although I don't like the word reformed being attached to it because I'm not a Calvinist or anything like that. But, um, uh, you know, I'm not like David Pullman, but uh, <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, that's that's the only thing I guess I would add is, yeah, that that's where I would fit in is I like this externalist, um, reliable, reliableist criterion for for knowledge, you know, added to true belief. Um, the only thing I, I might want to add uh, and get David Palman's take on it to, to see what he thinks is, so when it comes to the epistemic chain regress thing, there, there's this issue of internalism versus externalism. And my notion, so obviously warrant as planting it defines is an externalist criterion. Um, but I, my notion is when, when we have those, the conditions for warrant are satisfied, it activates as sort of either as a byproduct outside of the epistemic chain the internal irresistible inclination. So that's how we become cognizant that we have knowledge in this case. Um, or perhaps it's a circular thing, right? The internal irresistible inclination justifies the faculties and the faculties in turn justify the thing. Do, do you think there's any merit to that? Or yeah, what, what's your take on something, on the externalism, internalism debate? Yeah, I'm an internalist of a fairly radical variety. So externalist theories of justification, in my opinion, are pretty much useless because they describe justification uh, or warrant, if you prefer that term, from the third person perspective. So it's like your belief that God is justified or your belief in God is warranted if that belief came about through a reliable process. All right, well, that's great from this third person perspective, but from my first person perspective, uh, I wanna know if uh, that belief is actually true. So I'm gonna wanna know, did it actually come about through a reliable process? And the externalist either has to appeal to circular reasoning here, or he just has to you know, assume that it does. In fact, if you read Planting his book, Warranted Christian Belief, uh, he pretty much concludes by saying, uh, well, well, if Christianity is true, then it seems like something like the theory of warrant and proper function, that's going to be true. And uh, as John DePoe said in his own response to that, he's like, well, inquiring minds might want to know, is it true? And uh, basically, the best reformed epistemology has to offer you is to just say, oh, well, you know, if all of these other factors are the case, and there's no way you can know if they are, but if they are, then your belief is warranted. Uh, to me, that's very unsatisfactory. So that's my take on planting as theory and externalism in general. Cool. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So, uh, Kevin, where do you land in this conversation? Uh, you know, I see all those books behind you, and I, and I know you got something to say here. Where do you land on this whole idea of epistemology and so forth? You are muted again. <laughs> that's probably best. <laughs> um, no, I'm a little more eclectic, and that's going to be frustrating for, for everybody involved in this conversation. I do lean more toward an internalist uh, view for some of the reasons uh, just stated. 
but there, there's also some appealing things to the idea of warrant and proper basicality. Uh, there's something there. Uh, so it's hard for me to, um, to, to really uh, draw a sharp line in, in some of the in some of these categories to position myself under just one one label. Um, I, part of that, uh, which will probably come out as we go, is um, just a sense of epistemic modesty. Um, definitely, we want the best framework possible. Um, Sometimes I wonder if, if we're overly hopeful in how often we can achieve certainty and, and what certainty even means. So I've just said a lot uh, that has probably a little substance, <laughs> but that's just how I'm navigating, to be honest. Um, so it's a little more piecemeal than uh, some of my colleagues here. Right on, right on. So, uh, Mac, uh, we're... Uh, why don't you come in here and, and just uh, comment on what you just heard as well? I think a lot has been said, and uh, I agree with all of it. Um, I, uh, David was very thorough in uh, giving the four different uh, schools of epistemology in a Christian framework. Uh, but for me, like I like to keep things super simple. Like if someone asks me what is epistemology, like if I'm able to give them a sentence, then the sentence I would give them would be, it's simply the investigation into the differences of a justified belief versus an unjustified assertion. So if someone um, says, this is my belief, epistemology dictates that I, like, I can go two ways. I can either believe it's justified to believe that or it's just an assertion. And on the grander scale of things, like these three main questions that we as humans always have to uh, ask ourselves, first of all, do we know everything? Um, I would think most people would be like, I don't know everything. And second question would be, is it possible to know everything? People would say, maybe, maybe you could, there's a, there's a way in which we can know everything there is to know. And is it possible to know some things? And I think most people would fall into the camp where they do agree that they do know some things, but there are things that they don't know. So the question is, are there things that some people know that other, people's, that other people don't know? And is there a way that we can overlap in terms of our knowledge and come to like a base uh, starting point? Because I feel like when I was listening to the um, atheist panel last night, I felt like there were some, lot, lots of things I agreed with. But uh, there are also lots of things that I disagreed with because like they had a different starting point than we did, than we do. Um, and hopefully in this program we'll address that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I really want to uh, come back to David Palman here real quick. Uh, how how would we relate? I mean, we went over Christian epistemology, but how do we relate epistemology in general to the skeptic? And I'll, I'll just go around again, and we can discuss this a little bit. Maybe you give your take, and then we'll get uh, Dale, and then Kevin, and then Mac. Yeah, well, that's going to depend heavily on what sort of epistemology that you hold. So, uh, for example, Mac was just talking about how we have different starting points with the skeptic. Uh, that's not true if you hold a classical evidentialist Christian epistemology like I would. So my starting point is going to uh, probably be the same as uh, the, the 
the skeptics, right? Um, I'm starting at, uh, you know, the very foundational level, right? Those uh, basic incorrigible beliefs. Uh, and I'm going to work up from there to justify my belief in God and the truth of Christianity. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not trying to gerrymander the rules of epistemology to come out in some kind of favor that's going to, you know, work out for classical evidentialism or so that's going to work out for Christianity. Classical evidentialism uh, is very much an attempt to, you know, show that Christianity is true on the basis of the evidence. Uh, so. I, and I think most skeptics adopt that same basic epistemology. So uh, in that case, it's uh, not really difficult to relate your epistemology to the skeptic. Now, on the other hand, if you hold uh, to, say, like reformed epistemology, this is going to be about, um, you know, the, this question of proper function, uh, you know, maybe uh, you'll have a disagreement with the skeptic, right? Because maybe his, maybe he's got like this organ or something, this this cognitive faculty that's designed to sense that God exists, right? Planting us seems to have that kind of idea. Maybe it's not working. And, you know, maybe you don't think any of the arguments for God's existence are any good. Well, then you may just have to agree or disagree, right? You've got a cognitive faculty that's working and you can sense that God exists and he can't. And, you know, that's the end of the story. There might just be an impasse there. Or you could be like the presuppositionalist who um, says that, you know, that he's going to try to show the atheist that his epistemology, you know, you can't account for induction, can't account for deduction, can't explain the laws of logic, can't explain uniformity in nature, can't solve the problem of the criteria. If you try to uh, hold that skeptical epistemology, you're going to run into all these problems you can't solve. And the only way to get around them is to presuppose that the Bible is the word of God. So uh, depending on what sort of epistemology you hold, you're going to relate that to the skeptic in very different ways. Right. Dale? Yeah, so yeah, I think so. David Palman is mostly correct in, in what he just characterized. Um, you know, it's it's taking the planting a root. I, I've encountered that problem with David Johnson many, many times, for example, and multiple skeptics on here. Um, but I, I would just, I guess I would just come back and say, I'm, I'm not sure that's an issue, right? So yeah, we, we all start with these, we hope we all start with these basic foundational or, or basic beliefs, but sometimes we don't. There are people that say they don't have knowledge about that sort of thing. And that's where I think planting as notion could come into effect. You know, their their faculties are malfunctioning or some something went out of whack and that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I don't see that necessarily as a, a count against it, but I do take David Palman's point that you need more, and this is why I involve that internalist aspect. I go beyond planting and, and say that there's this activation of this irresistible inclination towards the belief that is activated internally, and on that basis, that's how we are cognizant that we have knowledge or warrant, because otherwise, what the heck can you say? Um, yeah. All right. Kevin? Nothing much to add to, uh, to that so far. All right. Uh, Matt? Uh, nothing to add either. All right. So, I mean, let's go – let's get to the, some of the basics of epistemology again. Let's just rehash that just a little bit. Uh, you know, Arist Aristotle said that, you know, man – has his very nature is to know things, right? So, you know, I'm, how do we come to knowledge in general? 
And I know David's talking about inference and stuff like that, but let's go back to the ontology of it. You know, where does all this stuff come from real quick? I mean, let's let's cover that base real quick. Paulman? All right. So uh, two elements of knowledge are really not controversial, and that is belief and truth. So if I uh, want to, you know, if I know something, I've got to believe it. Right? If I don't believe something, I don't know it. And that belief has got to be true. Right. I can't have false knowledge. Uh, the debate is over, you know, what else is there? Because obviously right, I can't just believe something that's true. Right. Like maybe I spontaneously decide to believe I'm going to have chicken for dinner tonight, but I don't have any you know, reason to support that belief. Then I don't know it. You know, even if I'm really having chicken tonight, then maybe I just got lucky. So uh, that's, you know, out of the park. That's not knowledge. Uh, so then what else are we going to add to that? Now, my account, the traditional account, is that it's justification. That is, if you want to have knowledge, then you've got to have some kind of reason, some kind of evidence for that, uh, that, you know, turns true belief into knowledge. Uh, and so I think Dale disagree and say, no, you know, justification, you know, that's fine, but, you know, you've got to have warrant. And so the difference here is really the difference between internalism and externalism. <clears throat> and for anyone who's not familiar with that, the uh, controversy there is over, do I need uh, awareness of why my belief is, uh, basically why my belief counts as knowledge, right? Uh, or why my belief has, uh, to, to use a neutral term, positive epistemic status, right? And so if you are an internalist like me, you think you do have to know why, then you're going to cash that out in terms of justification. My belief is justified for me if I have uh, some kind of reason for it. You know, in a way, this is kind of commonsensical, right? Like, say that God really exists, and there are really good arguments for believing in God, but I don't know any of them then my belief isn't justified, right? I have to know what the arguments are in order to be justified in the belief. Now, take the externalist position, it doesn't, you don't, you don't have to know that, right? Uh, it, it's got to have been produced through a reliable process. So um, positive epistemic status, knowledge, it's not about um, these internal factors that you're aware of. Those are okay, like that can give you greater warrant, but uh, that's not necessary. As long as, uh, you know, my, my eyes are functioning properly uh, and my, my brain is functioning properly. All of that, if that's working properly, then, you know, I've got knowledge, even if I don't know why it is or even that it is. And, and so if you've got a similar, you know, organ or census divinitatis, that's, you know, God, your belief in God can be apart from any sort of argumentation. And so that's really the difference between the internalist and the externalist. It's what perspective is necessary. Is it first person internalism or third person externalism? One, one little um, variation or possibly overlap there is in internalism is to have to have direct aware access to the justification or the reason, or do I just have to have access to justification? Do I need to be aware of the justification uh, or not? And that's sort of an overlap case. What do you think? Yeah, so there are different sorts of internalism. You've got like access internalism, you've got internal state internalism. Uh, so, you know, broadly internalism requires that the subject has got to have some sort of uh, access to it. So is that direct? Um, 
some internalists, like maybe uh, Panay Abuchvarov, might say yes. Uh, he's pretty extreme. Most internalists would say as long as you can get access to it without, um, you know, going anywhere outside of the contents of your own mind, then the belief can be justified. That would be my own position on it is that uh, I don't have to like presently have the justification in the forefront of my mind, but as long as I can, you know, bring it to memory, bring it to my mind without, um, you know, having to look it up in a book or something or having to ask someone, then uh, it's still internal to me. And so it can still confer justification. Now that just for a clarification for others listening, perhaps um, by internalism, we, we're not meaning that it's only internal to my mind. That is that there's not an external referent. We're simply talking about um, our access to our justification for believing something, right? Right, yeah. So we wouldn't say that um, the evidence and reasons, they don't exist out in the actual world. We're just saying there's got to be a connection between the subject and that evidence, right? If the evidence is out there, but I don't know about it, no justification. I've got to have some kind of connection, which we might cash out in terms of awareness or access to that evidence, right? It's got, there's got to be a part of me that knows about it in order for it to confer justification. No justification for, for you, uh, the, the individual in question at that point, if you don't have some sort of access. But that wouldn't mean that there aren't some other knowers who do have access to that justification and so they have knowledge, right? Right. Justification is very much um, relative to uh, the person, right? So it's not about if justification's there, it's about if you have it. So I might be justified in believing in God because I'm aware of, you know, 20 great arguments that are all sound and valid. Uh, but, you know, whereas maybe Joe believes in God because, you know, he was taught this in Sunday school. So maybe he's not justified in his belief. So it's going to, it's not, um, so the belief can be justified, you know, just depending on uh, the reasons that you have for it, how many you have for it. And and I would also say that you can be justified in believing something that is not true. All right. Uh, yeah. And having those 20 arguments is because David reads four or five books a week. So um, that's his uh, his average. So, um, Dale, what do you got to say on that? I mean, I'd like to hear from you and Mac on this as well yeah it's yeah it's it's hard um i'm trying to think of contributing something that would be like new beyond what we've already said because i think david p and kevin kind of covered it great here so i don't know maybe we could speak a little bit about okay well we discussed this notion of internal justification um as well as warrant as an externalist criterion um but what I noticed when I was on the show a couple of weeks ago, a lot of the skeptics like Darren Lute will say, yeah, but we don't care about these criteria. I, I think I even saw David Jay talking about this as well. So they, they don't care about these criteria. They're, they're interested in something else. So are, are there, maybe we should speak about what are some of the other things people have proposed that could be added to true belief to make knowledge and you know why don't we accept that? So, so for example, I thought I thought Darren Lute was saying um, he was accepting the no relevant uh, falsehood view. So no relevant falsehood plus justified true belief or whatever. This is what knowledge is. Um, but in, in the end, he wasn't saying that. His criterion is well, we can make a prediction. It's and it's a successful prediction. Uh, that plus 
true belief um, is knowledge. So, yeah, I don't know. Do, do you guys want to speak to some of the other things people have proposed beyond just justification or warrant? What what else is there out there that might count as knowledge? Uh, that's another point. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, Mac, you uh, can go. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, well, well, I was listening to the the atheist podcast last night, and what I kept hearing was that um, that that they uh, said that Christianity doesn't like it doesn't seem like an, a knowledge that everyone can access. So, so like there was a category error there in terms of like there's different types of knowledge, right? So like if I know how to fly a plane, that's different than knowing how. I'll a plane works um and what i kept hearing was that uh that 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 i should be able to uh provide a methodology for them to understand an experience like for instance like there's it's all men here right and i'd say no one here knows how like what it feels like to be pregnant um like you can read all the biology books you want and you can strap a pillow to your belly and walk around for nine months but you still won't replicate that that reality, that experience of being a pregnant person. Um, so, like, I feel like there's different types of knowledge. So there are people on this planet, women, who know what it's like to be pregnant versus men who don't know. Like, we can read about it. We can watch videos. We can understand it. But how, how do we uh, bridge the gap, so to speak? And... Um, that's that's where I feel like we need to uh, to make proper distinctions between categories because I felt like the skeptic panel wanted uh, the experiential knowledge to be exp to be given uh, an, like there needs to be like an explanation for an experience that they can access that they can know it's true, but I don't think that's really valid if that makes sense. I mean, it sounds like you're making the distinctions between. Uh, sorry, what's that? Uh, between uh, experiential, like knowledge that you experience, versus knowledge that you just know about on a propositional level. Right, right. You've got uh, propositional knowledge, uh, knowledge by acquaintance, and uh, oh goodness, this is going way back to early epistemology days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, which was two weeks for him. Two weeks for David on that. That was two weeks ago. <laughs> I think to be fair to to be fair to the skeptics, um, I think uh, you know the context is if Christians are making propositional claims, um, how do they take those? Uh, what do they do with them? What can they do with them? Uh, I mean, if I'm just making a claim about what I experience and nothing further than that I experienced it. Not sure the skeptic is really that interested in even engaging that necessarily, but if, if I'm making a propositional claim that uh, they ought to believe, in my view, then that's probably more the context, I think, you know, to be fair of, of what they're asking. Well, yeah, I, I understand that, uh, but I just felt like what I heard was that they they said, okay, this experiential knowledge has to be it has to be tested like the way we mm -hmm. test 
science, like how we use science as a methodology to test uh, experiments. That That's what I kept hearing. And I felt like there was a huge category error there because you don't really test experiences. Like if I go to the Grand Canyon, like I can tell you what it was like, um, but like, is there a real way to, to test my experience in a quantifiable way? No, your, your experience and your report of it, the testimony is just datum that uh, can be input into some larger experiment possibly, but you're you know, I agree with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, David Johnson also asked this one. How is a non-evidentialist justified? I'll let David start with that one. Yeah, I'm not completely sure what he means by that. Um, if he's talking about like a, a non-evidentialist uh, epistemology, it would be like a, a reliableist epistemology. And pretty much pretty much those are uh those are externalist theories of knowledge right like most most versions of internalism are going to be some form of evidentialism uh depending on how you define that uh, and so they don't even like the term justification they like they prefer the term warrant because remember for them justification it's not really about uh or, or sorry uh, positive epistemic status is not really about reasons it's not really about evidence it's all about reliable processes or functioning properly something like that and so they would just say that they have positive epistemic status they have knowledge if you know whatever criterion you want to put there right proper function reliable processes whatever if that criterion is fulfilled even if i don't know that it is but as long as it is in reality, then I've got positive epistemic status. And so that's uh, that's how they think about it. Now, from my perspective, I'm going to say you're not justified at all. Um, so uh, that's that's I, if I'm understanding his question correctly, that's how I would answer it. Yeah. He says, I mean, the Christian who it does not believe there is evidence for Christianity. They believe it is all <clears throat> internal and must be experienced. Right. Well, I mean, that's a good question because we've all run into plenty of Christians with that attitude, right? And you know, it's a problem. I would, I would say they're not justified technically. It doesn't mean they're wrong. You can be right and not be justified, but uh, as far as their epistemic persuasiveness, it's uh, severely curtailed. Um, I think in evangelism, uh, especially toward a skeptic. Yeah, I would agree with that. From my perspective, if you uh, reject that there's evidence for your beliefs or any kind of supporting reason for it, then yeah, you're not justified. There is uh, uh, one thing that I want to get to because we got to start getting into this sh their show as well. And I know uh, Max's been been kind of hitting on it a little bit, but there was a confusion there that I saw uh, them make in the beginning when they talked about. The difference between scientism versus scientific methodology. Um, anybody want to clear up what scientism is versus scientific methodology? Yeah, I appreciated, I appreciated what uh, one of the skeptics said that uh, it's too often that term is too often maybe thrown around lightly and possibly by some believers as just a way to avoid um, scientific inquiry or, or dealing with 
you know, some data. I appreciate that. Um, at the same time, and also I think the, the skeptics seem to really want to avoid the obvious fallacies of question begging in scientism. I, uh, as I was listening to it, uh, you know, they, they put a lot of effort into that. I think, maybe we'll get to this later. I think that in the end, what they came up with as science did end up being tilted toward what we might call scientism. But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I'll let somebody else speak first. All right, not all at once, guys. Paulman. I was going to give Dale an opportunity to take that one, but uh, yeah, just briefly, I think people who, um, you know, take uh, this view that science is somehow the greatest form of achieving knowledge or the greatest method or primary method, I think that there's huge problems with that. And you'll find that people like that uh, tend to, they'll like kind of be very dismissive towards philosophy, but they also will have um, a very poor understanding of it. And so that's kind of my experience has been uh, that, you know, they will not realize that scientific inquiry itself depends upon um, assumptions that are themselves only justified philosophically. So for example, um, scientific inquiry depends on the uh, viability of induction, right? Induction has got to be uh, a valid means of achieving knowledge in order for science to work at all. Well, immediately you're going to run into Hume's problem of induction right there, right? What justification do you have for thinking that the um, future is going to be like the past? Without that assumption, we don't get knowledge through science. Uh, and the only way to justify that assumption is uh, through philosophy. So I don't think um, you can really separate the two. And so I think that really philosophy has to come first because science won't even work if you don't have um, certain philosophical beliefs in place first. Awesome. Dale? Yeah, so, so I 100% agree with um, what David P. And, and Kevin just said, right? So they, they, I know that the skeptics, out of fairness, deny that they go for scientism, but afterwards they, they do seem to support it in, in what they say when they actually lay out their position. Um, and it was interesting because I, I spoke with Matt. I had him on my show. He really takes issue or offense at this this use of the word scientism, but when I properly defined it, there, you know, there are two versions, strong scientism, which uh, is self-refuting, as David P. gave, and then there's weak scientism. I think this is what, this is at least what Matt goes for, and this, I think, is what the other skeptics uh, really believe, uh, even if they say it. They, they do think that scientific truths or the scientific method is the most valuable or serious or authoritative sector, and it's this one-way street right science can be used to inform and correct other disciplines but no other disciplines even if there are some minimal truths in philosophy or history or whatever can be used to inform and correct science and you know there are there are the two problems with that so i think david uh p mentioned uh one of them is that look there are various pre philosophical presuppositions that stand behind science you can't even get science off the ground without these right there's that uh, problem of, of induction that David P. mentioned from Hume. There's 
uh, with Darren Lute. I, I mentioned the realism anti-realism debate. You have to assume realism for it to work, and he just has no way of, of approaching that without approaching the issue philosophically. Um, you know, there are the for philosophical first principles that have to be assumed, logical law of non-contradiction, and that sort of thing, as well as various other things. I think there are at least about 10 philosophical theses that have to be presupposed as foundational beliefs or or more foundational beliefs from which the scientific method derives before science can get off the ground. And it's just silly to think that scientific truths can have more uh, epistemic weight or merit um, than their f the foundational beliefs upon which they derive, right? That's just illogical. That can't be the case. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to, to add that a little bit. Um, and then the second thing is that, as a matter of fact, we know for a fact that there are cases where knowledge in other disciplines um, provides us with stronger knowledge, degree of knowledge than the scientific in certain cases and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's how I would sort of respond to the scientism charge. All right, Mac, you're, you're the only one that hasn't gone on this one yet. <laughs> what am I responding to again? The scientism and the scientific methodology. Oh, all right, yeah. Uh, so, like, I would say scientism, again, is like a fanatical uh, sense of, like, thinking science is the end-all, be-all of how we do epistemology. I'm not saying, I don't think any of the panelists from the show last week are scientists. Scient whatever. <laughs> They're little scientists, they are. But like, part of scientism. But I do think there's a sense in which, like, someone, there's a spectrum where some people def definitely do believe that science is the only way we can know everything there is to know about the human experience and ev how we know life, all these things. So I think there's definitely uh, room for that to be abused. Like, science, like, I'm, I'm glad that in the beginning Matthew said that uh, uh, science is okay with being wrong, but, like, it's not okay if, it, if it's wrong when it leads to, like, massive uh, uh, suffering. Um, so, like, when I think of, like, pseudosciences that we call them now uh, that caused harm to people, like phrenology that said black people were inferior because, well, we could measure skull sizes and, and we could then determine that you have low intelligence based on how your skull is shaped. I would think that's, that's bad science. That's science being used in an awful way. Um, and it's good that science self-corrects in that way, but I'd say like there, there's a sense in which um, scientism is bad for society as a whole. Um, yeah. All right. So I mean, I guess that gets us to the scientific method itself. I mean, and epistemology. Uh, yeah, I, I think it leads to knowledge. I mean, what would you guys say? I think the scientific method does lead. To, I mean, Descartes was the one that. I said that uh, we could have a methodology that leads to knowledge. So, you know, that's that was his big deal. Well, sure. I mean, I don't think any of us are going to dispute yeah. that uh, you can gain knowledge through the scientific method. What we're saying is that in order for that to be the case, there are certain yeah. uh, other beliefs that have to be in place. And these beliefs uh, cannot be justified through the scientific method, uh, obviously on pain of circularity, the scientific method assumes them. And so if you really want to have, if you adopt like I do, the belief that um, 
in order for any of your beliefs to ultimately be justified. You've got to have decisive justification at some point. That, that means the scientific method is only yielding conditionally justified beliefs because anything that you get through the scientific method is only going to be justified if these foundational assumptions are themselves justified. Okay, what justifies those? Well, if these are going to be justified, you have got to leave scientific method behind and you're going to have to get into philosophy. You're going to have to get into epistemology uh, in order to solve the problem of induction, in order to solve the problem of the external world, in order to solve the problem of the criteria, in order to solve the problem of deduction. All of these are uh, epistemological puzzles and they're only going to be solved through epistemological tools. You can't solve them through science. Science needs them. Uh, and if you can't do that, then you don't actually know that anything that you're gaining through scientific method is in fact justified, right? You're really assuming it is uh, unless you are really willing to deal with those meta level issues. Right on, right on. Anybody else want to comment on that? I think David knocked that out of the park there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, yeah, and once again, I, I agree with that. It's, it's kind of the same point I made about those you know, at least a dozen or so um, philosophical theses that have to be presupposed um, in order to incur justification or warrant on the scientific method. Obviously, we all agree, I, at least I do, that the scientific method does is a valid tool that provides us with actual knowledge about the world. And I think the skeptics did, being charitable to them, as, as David asked us to do, I, I think they did a great job on the issue of the flat earth and demonstrating how... Um, we have knowledge that the Earth is not flat um, through various scientific experiments and and facts using the scientific method that we use to come up with knowledge in that department. So, yeah, the case closed. I, I think the skeptics did our work for us and proved that the scientific method does provide us with knowledge, but it's not the be all and end all um, of knowledge. All right. Well. Um... Anybody else on that? I mean, uh, you know, we got two more panels uh, guests here that haven't responded on it yet. But if you guys want to move on, we can. Okay. <laughs> um, so let's get get into uh, belief in God and and so forth when it comes to this uh, idea of epistemology and ontology and so forth. Uh, you know, Plato often you know, is is depicted as pointing upward, uh, saying that the grounding of our knowledge and so forth comes from God. Um, the Bible and, you know, uh, Eastern thought came around and said, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, you know. So uh, uh, Aristotle always pointed inward, right, and, and, and Plato upward. Uh, so Where's our ontology, and, and let's start justifying our beliefs in God being the grounding of our knowledge and so forth. What do you mean when you say God being the grounding of our knowledge? Well, I mean, let's, let's talk about the ontology of how we come to know things. Let's get into that. And maybe I'm, I'm phrasing it wrong, but I'm trying to move the conversation into that realm of uh, – God and justifying our claims as Christians. Okay, okay, because, um, yeah, because this is going to be, you know, very different. I approach that like the complete opposite from how a presuppositionalist does, right? It makes well, no absolutely. sense. For me. 
right? Because I yeah. can't start with ontology. I have to start with epistemology. I have to start with what I know to figure out, you know, what is. And uh, the presuppositionalist, he wants to flip that around and say, oh, well, you know, without God, you can't have knowledge in the first place. So there's no sense in talking epistemology unless you're, you know, presupposing God. And uh, I mean, even Alvin Plantinga in his theory of warrant and proper function goes in for a little bit of that, which is no offense, Dale, but another reason I'm not fond of um, Plantinga's methodology there. Uh, so the way I, you know, would get to believe in God is, again, we have the foundational incorrigible beliefs, right? Things that we literally cannot be wrong about, uh, you know, things like uh, simple perception, simple analytic truths. Uh, we go from here, we make inferences, which are going to be probabilistic, right? We only have certainty. We only have infallibility at that foundational level. Beyond that, everything's going to be probabilistic. And so from the evidence, I'm going to make probabilistic inferences to God. So, uh, for example, we observe a phenomenon like that we have information uh, in DNA, right? Uh, we're going to make observations that uh, information only comes from intelligent minds in our experience. So probabilistically, the DNA information in the DNA uh, molecule there is going to be best explained by reference to an intelligent being, what we might call God. Uh, we're going to make similar arguments from the beginning of the universe, similar arguments from uh, the existence of morality, similar arguments um, from all of these uh, various arguments for theism, right? Arguments from causation and such. And from there, we're going to build a strong case for believing in God, say, on the basis of evidence uh, that is most probable. So that is very much a, a evidentialist way of uh, getting to believe in God. We would categorically deny that it can be properly basic. We would deny that it comes about through proper function. Got to have evidence, got to have reasons, and it is necessarily going to be probabilistic and therefore open to falsification. Now, some people don't like that, but I think that uh, there are higher epistemic costs uh, with any other method of trying to get to belief in God. Any method that tries to gerrymander the rules of epistemology to get you God for free, as I like to say, I don't think there's a legitimate way to do that. All right. Uh, Dale? Right. You're the uh, reformed epistemologist here, so I got to hear a little bit from you on this. I, I always wince, though, when I hear that word reformed, because uh, I'm not a Calvinist, I swear. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we know, Dale, we know. All right, very good. Thank you. Um, well, yeah, well, so so believe it or not, so, so David P. kind of brought up my name, um, but I, I would actually agree with him. So in, in general, when you're starting, we've got to start with epistemology, not ontology, although it after you've sorted out general epistemology, I prefer to start with the ontology and that sort of thing. So um, I agree with that point. Um, but I do think that ontologically speaking, if you're asking me that ontological proposition, you know, is God the grounding, ontological grounding of everything? Yeah, we, we do believe God exists, I'll say. God is the grounding of truth. God is the grounding of, of knowledge, right? It's, it's all grounded. Everything is grounded in God in some way. So obviously approaching it from the the perspective of warranted true belief well how our faculties are designed by who uh by god in some way so in that sense yeah ontologically speaking i would say my epistemology is dependent on god he's the one that created our faculties and, and the environment that we live in and that sort of thing uh to give us knowledge in the first place but I would disagree with presuppositionalists strongly. 
uh, you know, sorry to bring it up, David P., but your your friend Darth Dawkins, um, you know, he's making that mistake. I, I mentioned this in the, the show with David Arlott a couple weeks ago, but the, the presuppositionalists are mistaking. They're saying, well, there's you agree with the truth of this ontological proposition that God exists, I'll say, everything's grounded in him. Yes. And then he's saying, but that is required, epistemically speaking, uh, before you can have knowledge in anything. And I think that's totally wrongheaded on their part, that they're making an epistemic ought as a conclusion from an ontological is, and you can't do that. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. my point there. Yeah, so guys, you know, I brought it up because I was trying to go somewhere with it. Um, and where I wanted to go was, uh, like I said earlier, uh, and this is for David Palman as well to to jump in here, is what do you think about statements that, I mean, th- this whole show was predicated on uh, a blog that David Johnson came up with. And one of the things in it was that, you know, what is the truth? And when you talk about Jesus being the personification of truth, right? And then you have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So what do you say to those things, David? Oh, goodness. These are like really bad exegetical presuppositionalist arguments. Yep. And, um, you know, and, well, here's the thing is, is like I'm, I'm asking this because, you know, I have my own answer here. I think right, there right. are exegetical problems as well, uh, but I'm hosting, so I can't really <laughs> give my whole answer here. So I do want you to answer that. I mean, what do you think about that, those things? You know, because, you know, David said, you know, he don't think he doesn't think that Jesus is the personification of truth. But I mean, what do you think? Right. So, I mean, when Jesus said, uh, you know, he was the door, for example, was he a um, piece of wood, you know, with uh, hinges and a handle? No. Um, So, you know, similarly, when he's saying I am the way, the truth and the life, we need to, you know, cash out a little bit more. What does he mean by that? And not, you know, read that with wooden literalism. Uh, When he says he is the truth. He means that he is revealing the truth. When he says he is the life, he means he's the giver of eternal life, right? When he says he is the way, he's not hes not saying he's a path, right? He's uh, saying that metaphorically through faith in him, you've got a way, you know, at peace with the father. So uh, we need to understand that because we have really absurd consequences. If you think when he says, you know, I am the truth, when he says, you know, I am that which corresponds to reality. I mean, th- there's not even any you know, there's not anything there to, uh, that would even make sense. Uh, similarly, when presuppositionalists, because goodness, they love to point to Proverbs 1, uh, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of um, knowledge. Uh, there's a problem here. Uh, first of all, they're trying to make um, Proverbs speak about epistemology and it's it's wisdom literature so it's very much like uh an almanac today right you're looking at just wise saying snippets of wisdom and not even necessarily universal truths so you know you need to be careful if you're gonna like draw this huge epistemological statement out of the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge more fundamentally if you do a word study on that uh the, the hebrew word here translated uh beginning and i have uh, it can mean origin, which is what the um, which is what the presuppositionalist takes it to mean. But it doesn't have to mean that. It can also just mean highest. It can mean peak. It can mean summit. Uh, and I think that that is the better usage of it here, because uh, you can trace it to um, the word that uh, this deviates from. That word's primary meaning is summit and peak. And here, when you know, uh, it's talking about. Um, you know, how to have peace with God and stuff, uh, how to um, 
how a wise, you know, how to live wisely, conduct yourself uh, in a wise way in life, then it seems to me it makes much more sense to read this as saying the fear of the Lord is the highest kind of knowledge. It's the summit of knowledge. It's the peak of knowledge. And so that's very much how I read Proverbs 1 there. Uh, and yeah, so that's how I would answer the presuppositionalist. I, I think that uh, when Jesus says he is the truth, uh, you know, philosophically speaking, I think that the idea there is that Jesus is claiming to be um, the the source of truth and that he's the source of creation about you know, about which there is truth. He's also on the other end, the culmination of truth, where all of that is headed and the point or purpose for it. That's the that's a New Testament claim about Jesus in a philosophical, theological sense, I think. Yeah, I think I agree um, with both Kevin and Ming. So scripturally speaking, uh, David P. is right. And I, I'll confess, I, I'm ashamed to admit that I, I've used that verse uh, wrongly in, in the sense that it's not speaking of. But I, I, the reason I do that is because philosophically speaking, I think it's, again, ontologically true that Jesus, uh, that God is the grounding of all truth. But you know, just another angle to approach, well, is this supposed to be, scripturally speaking, taken literally? I, I don't think so. Um, think of it from the angle of the Trinity, right? There are certain, uh, certain features of the world are grounded in, such as truth, are grounded in God as a being, as a whole. So Jesus saying, I am the truth, wouldn't make sense, because he, as an individual person, was not the tr is not equated to the truth the entire being is, whereas other properties like omniscience, those are ascribed to the each of the divine persons and that sort of thing. So that's another angle that you can say, yeah, this verse isn't meant to be a philosophical statement of identity or something like that. So, yeah. Um, I agree with everything everyone said, uh, but I would say that 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 verse actually like the way David J, uh, David R, uh, his his post when I first saw it the first time, like I feel like he is applying it in the sense that that's what most most Christians tell him, that you know Jesus saying he's the truth that means uh, he's claiming to be the source of all truth, and I I agree I I believe that's what Christ was saying at the moment, but like he's not applying it in a literal sense the way uh. Like he's a, he's a door, or like has hinges and a knob or anything, but uh, I do think that even the concept of truth itself, like if there's no starting point, again, like there has to be like there has to be an object objective truth out there. It has to be it has to be absolute. It has to be separate from what we perceive. So in that sense, I believe that. Jesus can say that he's the personification of truth if he indeed is is God. If he isn't, then he's lying. So then that, that becomes a problem. Um, so just to say that it's a valid statement for someone to make if indeed they are claiming to be God. David Johnson came back and said, so when I point to the truth, can I claim that I am the truth? Uh, I would say no, because 
again, David Johnson does not personify truth. Like, like I would bet that he has told lies in his in his life. Um, so even if he says that I've never told a lie since I was 20 years old, the the fact that he has told a lie means that his 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 identity of what it means to be truth is is false if that makes sense yeah yeah i got you david palman yeah. you got anything that else to add or kevin yeah i mean that that was pretty much it um i think a single instance of pointing to something that's true <clears throat> doesn't really entitle you to say i am the truth uh i think most uh what jesus is really saying there is first Yes, the, the point is right that it's, it's consistently pointing to truth, but also that these are um, like very important truths, truths of eternal life and truths of salvation, which could not be gained from another source. So I think that really is uh, largely the import of Jesus saying he is the truth. Yeah. Um, so there was one thing in the show that they said uh, about not understanding method, their message their methodology or our methodology and them not understanding our methodology. And David said that our senses aren't fine tuned for truth. And, you know, he went on to say, you know, the truth doesn't really set you free. And that's, I think another exegetical problem as well. I mean, when Jesus says, you know, the truth will set you free, he's talking about uh, something specific there, not truth in general, you know? So, uh, but, as far as our senses aren't fine-tuned for truth, are they fine-tuned for survival versus fine-tuned for truth? What do you think? Well, this is going to be something where probably Dale will have a bit of a uh, answer that will be more interesting for me. Uh, <clears throat> again, I don't see justification as being a matter of um, whether our senses are fine-tuned for truth or reliable or whatever. None of that enters the picture for me because I don't have the third person perspective to be able to know if any of that is the case. So uh, for me, I'm just starting with uh, the phenomenon that I'm given, uh, forming beliefs on that basis, and then just making probabilistic inferences from there. If my senses are, you know, completely misleading me or whatever, I mean, again, I just have no way of knowing. Yeah, I think... Um... So I, I was, believe it or not, thrilled when I heard David Jay say this because we did a show on the evolutionary argument against naturalism and that sort of thing. So obviously he took that lesson to heart and understood it. Um, so that's great. Um, so yeah, if, taking a reliableist criterion, you know, Alvin planting his notion of warrant. Um, from a naturalist or atheistic perspective, evolutionary mechanisms are designed to or successfully aimed at producing what beliefs uh, that have survival value not necessarily truth value so this is what uh, david's point was going to say and it, it's funny because a lot of the skeptics on there darren lute when i brought up the the um planting his argument evolutionary argument against naturalism they, they all said well don't you know the two can be correlated survival value isn't necessarily inconsistent with being truth value and they'll give the the standard example of well it's true that there's a bear there so i'm going to run and that sort of thing but um yeah when it when it 
it's not necessarily the case is what I would want to say. And there, there are obvious examples where the atheists themselves in context of religious beliefs or beliefs in God, where they would say, well, it's not necessarily uh, false beliefs can attribute um, to survival value and adaptation and that sort of thing. So therefore you would be unwarranted. They don't have knowledge in their, they can't rely on their faculties to adjudicate is belief in God warranted or not. Um, because according to them, they say that atheism is true and that um, therefore the fact that theistic belief is, is evolutionary um, beneficial for survival, uh, that's why that got selected, even though in their opinion it's false, if that makes sense. Um, approaching at it from a Christian perspective, though, obviously it's God that is designing. It's not just naturalistic evolutionary processes. Even if God used that providentially in some way, we could still say that in that sense it is geared towards producing our faculties for a sensus divinitatis or our spirit, which I think is, is separate from our soul. It's a faculty of our soul that allows us to relate to God. Those would be designed by God, either directly or indirectly through evolutionary mechanisms to produce true beliefs about the existence of God or the truth of Christianity. So we would have that um, to aid us to counter this example, whereas atheists wouldn't. They're, they're just, they're screwed on this relying on evolutionary faculties produced by evolutionary mechanisms. Sorry, I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kevin, what do you got to say on this one? Right. I mean, it is a, it is a real problem. Um, naturalism, like any worldview, needs things to be true, not just helpful, um, in order for it to be a coherent worldview. And it's difficult to um, arrive at that in a purely naturalistic way concerning uh, the development of sensory and, and other mental faculties. Mac? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how many, I know David's a uh, materialist, but I don't know if the other atheists were. But the thing is that even in the, in the sense of someone saying, okay, I, I don't believe this evidence for God, but there, there are people on the atheist side who say, all right, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. So there's a sense in which even someone who says they don't believe in um, a creator, they can recognize in themselves that there's a spiritual aspect to them. Um, and so the question is, okay, how do those people epistemically get to that? Is it is it externalist methods or internalist? And so again, it just becomes like Dale just said, like he said it well, like kind of screwed in terms of getting like like being consistent. Because the question is, are you consistent with what you say the world is versus how you prove things because you can be like, okay, I need evidence, hard evidence that uh, God is real. But then you can also turn around and say, okay, I believe in the spiritual realm or I'm, I believe I'm a spiritual being. Um, so it, it's, 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 uh, I just, I see that as a huge inconsistency in, uh, in the materialist point of view. Right on. And Mac, I, I want to stay with you for a second because uh, you know, a lot of my questions right now are going to be pretty random. So we all listened to the show last, uh, not just last night. I mean, I, I finished the end of it today <laughs> in the morning, but uh, I did. Uh, you know, we all listened to it, 
and I do want you guys to bring out your own topics that you guys picked up in the debate that you specifically want to address and and you know basically ask your colleagues here about. So I want you guys to be able to you know expose the roots that really stood stood out to you. All right. So I have to ask a question about something that was You don't said. really have to ask a question. You can start by giving a critique of one of the big points that you thought was uh, was pertinent that really stood out to you. And then you can ask the the panel what you think and vice versa. You can just ask them a question or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I would like to start with what, what kind of like stood out to you and that you really wanted to tackle. And then we all can just comment on it. Okay. Well, I think everyone on the panel did a good job, like in terms of explaining where they're coming from. But like, I felt like there was a was a huge uh, disconnect. Like, like all of them were saying, okay, science is the methodology by which we know what's true and what's not. But towards the end, when they were explaining, okay, this is my experience. This is my personal experience. Oh, I grew up in. Uh, in a church, or I was told that I have to, in order to experience God, I have to read the Bible, and others, uh, Darren was saying um, he was never really indoctrinated, and all these different perspectives, all these different experiences, but like, how do we tie, tie them all in together? Because what I kept hearing was that science is a methodology that, uh, keep, that ties us all in together, but like, here's my personal experience, or here's what I grew up hearing, therefore, how I feel is true. So that was pretty much the biggest inconsistency. I don't know if anyone else picked up on that. Dale, what do you think? Oh, uh, okay. So, sorry, McIntyre, can you just repeat your question quickly? Sorry, I was just distracted. Well, no, no, I wasn't a question. I was just saying, um, like, th there's a sense in which the 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 panel was saying that we, we all have ways of knowing the truth via the scientific method, but then towards the end there, they were uh, expressing their experiences as if they were binding. So if someone says, okay, this is how I was taught Christianity, therefore it's true, uh, that doesn't really, is that really consistent with the, with the claim that, that epistemology is how, that their ep epistemology is consistent? Gotcha. All right. Yeah. Yeah. This was one of the main I, I, I kind of jotted down three main things um, that I was interested in. And this was one of the main points is that I, I sort of noticed there was a lot of discussion of, um, you know, the scientific method and that sort of thing. One got the sense that they were just trying to say, OK, well, number one, this is a valid epistemic tool that we can all use. We, we all agree on that. All the Christians ha have come out and agree on that. And perhaps they even implied or explicitly said that the scientific methodology is the best tool. You know, that's hence the weak scientism and that sort of thing. But there was no discussion of what really is important about the issue. I don't I don't care if you think it's a valid tool. I don't care if you think it's the best tool. The real question is, what is the minimal set of sufficient epistemic tools that um, or sets of tools that one can use to gain knowledge. Do we have to use? Is the scientific method the only way to use? Maybe if, even if it is the best, are there could there be other tools that are less uh, less um, not as good as the scientific method, 
but maybe they're still sufficient for us to gain knowledge in other aspects and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that was what I sort of wanted to hear more from the skeptics is, okay, well, wh- where, how do you set the bar for the minimal sufficient sufficiency of the scientific method? Couldn't there be other methods like the historical method that give us lesser uh, strict standards or use uh, tools that don't provide us with the same degree of knowledge, but they're still sufficient to claim knowledge. And I didn't hear anything from the skeptics on that front. Hmm. You're Am muted, Russell. Uh, yeah, so any takers on that one um david johnson did have a question um but we'll we'll wait to the end for that but uh yeah what did you guys think about what dale just said well i think there was a a good point there uh that you know that that both of them have made and it kind of comes to my own thought on um the show if i can if i can give that as well which was um kind of this admission that so they're okay with science like being wrong, right? Science can yield um, a justified belief, but that belief could turn out to not be true, right? We have, uh, and I mean, that's one of the things of science is that science never um, establishes certain conclusions, conclusions that cannot be overturned uh, because new evidence can always come along and, um, you know, overturn old conclusions. And I mean, that's a fine thing about science, but there is an issue here if, um, you know, if you want to say that, oh, well, because we all agree that, you know, science is a uh, means of gaining knowledge that, you know, therefore that, you know, should be our primary one or our best one or whatever. Well, first of all, the, the fact that we all agree on that, that's completely irrelevant because some of us may actually know why we trust science and one of, some of us might not, right? So some of us who have actually looked into like the problem of the external world, the problem of induction, the problem of uh, deduction, some of us who actually know why science works, we got a whole bunch of other tools that brought us to that place, right? So you can't say, oh, well, you know, I didn't do any of the dirty work there, but I agree that science is a, you know, way of gaining knowledge, so I'm just going to restrict myself to using science. Completely invalid. Um, You can't use it just because the rest of us agree on it, especially when the rest of us are, you know, familiar with some other tools of gaining knowledge, which we used to get to the conclusion that we can use science to gain knowledge. Uh, And so the primary one I'm thinking of here is philosophy. And uh, in my own discussion with Darren, uh, he seemed very, um, he like didn't like philosophy, right? He didn't like philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Well, um, you know, if you don't like philosophy, you don't have a reason for trusting your scientific method. If you want to get reasons for trusting the scientific method, you're going to have to go to philosophy, but then you're going to have to deal with philosophical arguments for God. So, um, I think there's some inconsistency there, uh, as well as there's a problem of conditional justification. Again, that comes up because, again, your belief in science as a method of knowledge is only justified if certain foundational assumptions are also justified. And if you can't justify those foundational assumptions, right, if you can't show decisively that, that your belief chain is justified, 
then I will argue that it's not, in fact, justified at all, right? Even if science ontologically can ground knowledge, right, can gain you knowledge, if you don't know why it is, then I don't think you're getting knowledge from it at all in the first place. And here's why. is because conditional justification can be used to justify literally anything, right? If I have this belief that uh, anything that a guy wearing mismatched socks tells me is true, well, if it's true that everything that this guy wear, who's wearing mismatched socks tells me is true, if that's really the case, then I can get knowledge through there, right? But if I'm not actually willing to justify the belief that everything that the guy tells me, uh, that the guy wearing mismatched socks tells me is true, that that is itself a good assumption, then I'm not getting knowledge at all. And the same applies to scientific method. If you can't show why science is a good method in the first place, then I'm going to argue you're not getting knowledge out of that method at all. And so you can't just say, oh, because I agree with you that you can get knowledge that way. Therefore, I can use it, but I don't have to pay attention to philosophy. doesn't work like that. Kevin, what, yeah. What, oh, yeah. Go, Matt. Go ahead. No, no, no. You can ask Kevin because I was going to go to a different issue that I also thought okay. was, yeah. yeah. I think that was a great way to put it. So the problem, just in, in short then, is uh, that we don't really have a, um, science itself can't produce an epistemic standard or a normative standard to compare other methods of knowledge, right? So again, it just goes back to it. it's, it's, it's really philosophy that, that does that. I think that goes along with what uh, Pullman has just said. Um, not sure how to improve on it, really. Um, it's well said. Yep. So, David, in your conversation, before we get back to Matt, because he's going to move us to a different question. Um, during your conversation with Darren and, you know, it was also said in, in our last show about demonstrations and so forth and how we come to having to demonstrate things and, and you know, we have to prove it to be accurate. You came up with this very uh, strong response that I even use today. <laughs> uh, it was about uh, proving the hypothesis before you can actually test it. And that was that was really that that's pivotal, I think. Can you explain a little, little bit on that? All right. Well, I mean, so philosophical atheists like Graham Oppie uh, and Philippe Leon are not going to use this tech. But popular atheists, guys like Matt Dillahunty and unfortunately Darren took this uh, track in our discussion on this, uh, is that before you can invoke God as an explanation for something, you have to prove that God exists. And that is completely ridiculous. That is not how science works. You don't have to prove a hypothesis before you can use it to explain evidence. Uh, the way that we judge if a hypothesis is good is by how well it explains the evidence in the first place. You don't get a hypothesis proven before it explains the evidence. Its explanation of the evidence is the justification for adopting the hypothesis. And so the same is going to apply with God, right? That if we're treating God as a hypothesis, and I'm going to get the precepts on my back for that because they hate treating God as a hypothesis, even though they do it. But um, 
yeah, when we're trying to uh, evaluate, does God is God the best explanation of some particular phenomenon, right? Is, does God explain uh, the fine tuning of the universe best? Does God explain the origin of the universe best? Does God explain design and biological organisms the best? I don't have to show you that God exists first, right? If I did, then like the, using these as arguments, that would be completely out of place. And the same thing's going to apply, like uh, say for the theory of evolution, right? The theory of evolution. It'd be like me saying, oh, well, you have to prove the theory of evolution before you can invoke it to explain transitional fossils. You have to prove the theory of evolution before you can use it to explain orphan genes. You have to uh, prove the theory of evolution before you can use it to, um, you know, explain uh, biogeographical distribution, whatever. It, it's silly. We have no other way of proving things apart from, uh, at least in science, testing them against the evidence and seeing how well they explain it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this trick on the part of like uh, Matt Dillahunty and stuff is it's it's really a front loaded epistemology that tries to it's really I call it atheist presuppositionalism because they're trying to stack the deck against theism. They're trying to make it impossible to even show that God exists because they're going to say, oh, you have to prove that God exists before you can um, use him to explain evidence. And so what I like to say in response to that is you don't have to prove a hypothesis before you can propose a hypothesis. That's why it's a hypothesis. Very good. Mac, the mic is yours, my friend. All right. Thank you. Uh, one of the important things that I heard was that, okay, if I need to know something, I go to the experts, right? So I, I, want, I just want to know what you guys think about uh, what Matthew said, like, he woke up one one day and uh, he felt like his chest was tight and he just felt like he was being attacked by a spiritual being. And so his first response was to call his mother and ask what was going on. And his mother told him that it was like after consulting with other church members that it was a that it was a demonic attack. Like, do you think that is a valid way of uh like like do do christians do that let me just just say like is that is that found in christian scriptures like if you wake up feeling groggy or feeling paralyzed like do this do, do you go to your pastor or like what's what's the protocol it has to do with your presuppositions <laughs> theologically i mean the the reality is globally uh, there are a lot of Christians who think like that. Um, I don't think uh, historically it bears out, but presently, globally, yeah, it's a real experience. I wasn't surprised at all in his description. Don't doubt it a bit that that's you know how it played out for him. And um, I would have never thought of it, uh, maybe because we have a close friend who has night terrors and have only thought of it as a medical condition and had never heard of that as being attributed to demons. But um, I don't know if that's what you're asking, but yeah, plenty of Christians do uh, unfortunately think like that. Oh, I was asking, do the Christians who think like that, are they like, are they, is there a warrant to think like that? No. Okay. <laughs> 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 All right, great, because I, I also did think that there was. So, like, I, I feel like pointing to, like, oh, because my Christian mother told me that I was demonically uh, 
Johnson attacked. says biblically there is a warrant for it. I, I would love a reference if, if you could provide it, David. Um, but, we'll let them but come I, on at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully so. Yeah, I, I just thought that was interesting, and I just wanted you to hear your thoughts, like everyone's thoughts on that. Awesome, awesome. Uh, is you want to move on from there, or do you want to uh, let let uh, let's let Dale answer that real quick? Because I want to get yeah. everybody's take. Um. Yeah. So, so obviously, the fact that Matt. Uh, did that as a Christian proves that there are Christians that do it. Um, I, I tend to think it, it was unwarranted on his part. Obviously, he came to a false conclusion, treating his mother as though she were an expert in, in some way. I, I'm not sure why his mother wasn't considered an expert by him in the first place. But um, yeah, I, I, there, there's no biblical uh, warrant on a scriptural basis to do that either, in my opinion. So I, I would be interested to see David Jay's uh, proof of that. Um, I mean, obviously there there is spiritual warfare, and I, I would go to a pastor or an authority on biblical scriptures to get an understanding on, okay, what what is the nature of demonic possession, if it happens today or not, and that sort of thing. So I, I would go to them for some knowledge, but I wouldn't just go with them. I would also consult secular medical sources to see if this is a condition or not. And, and to, given the total evidence, I would make my decision on what I, I think happened or, or not. Or, yeah. That's sort of my take there. Awesome. Pullman. <laughs> You're the last one. Oh, you're muted again. Yeah, it really doesn't want to unmute today. All right, yeah, no, I mean, I would agree, I would agree with what they said. Uh, pretty much, uh, you could say that, yes, if you hold um, you know, a, a Christian worldview, then you'd have to allow for the possibility that something could be caused by demonic um, oppression or possession or something like that. But um, also, you know, don't assume that in advance unless you know you've got really strong evidence for that uh, as i said you know in our uh, on our own show recently when we discussed miracles is that don't invoke the supernatural unless you have to so um if you know this can be explained medically if this can be explained any other way look to those explanations first uh, and you know if they're coming up short then okay maybe we've got reason to consider uh some other sort of explanation but don't go there first okay yeah. All right. Um, anybody else want to uh, tackle what they heard from Kevin? Did, did you want to tackle anything that you heard from the broadcast that you'd like to put out there? I think I mentioned earlier that I think that the original avoidance of, you know, making science uh, supreme up front, I think that did, you know, come back around uh, to, yeah, uh, science is the authoritative. Somebody actually said that we we need to bow before it. Other other modes of analysis or um, knowledge finding processes in the end will all bow before science. Um, it's a real overstatement for reasons we've already gone over and over um 
I was I was interested if anybody uh, thought about um, some of the claims or implied claims made for neuroscience in terms of uh, explaining consciousness on a material basis. Any thoughts on that? From my own limited study on this, uh, we don't have anything like a um, working theory of how to explain consciousness on the basis of um, studies in neuroscience. Uh, in fact, in fact, if my study's correct, we've got findings that are very resistant to explanation by uh, materialist explanation. But um, even if you did, I'm not really sure what the relevance <laughs> of those findings would be. Like, let's just say that, like, as far as the human constitution is concerned, we're completely uh, material beings. So what? I mean, I've got plenty of theistic arguments that don't depend on the human constitution. So nothing about that implies that God does not exist or that Christianity um, is not true. I don't know if it's my turn or not, but um, yeah, I... Um, I, I believe it or not, I do think that there are arguments, positive reasons and arguments independent to think that the that we're non-physical. We have a non-physical aspect to our existence and that sort of thing. And I, I've done a four-part four-part series on that in which Darren ha, has responded with his with his various objections and that sort of thing. Um, I think the main problem with Darren or, or physicalists is that they kind of assume that, um, you know, appealing to neuroscience as an argument and neuroscientific findings, uh, they conflate causation or correlation uh, with identity. Um, you know, the identity relation is contradictory to a causation relation and that sort of thing. And many of the arguments using logical argumentation prove that um, our consciousness cannot be identical to our physical brain or, you know, a set of processes in the brain and that sort of thing. And that's what I sort of base my belief on in the existence of a, an immaterial soul. Um, so, you know, some of the objections they give, the main objection that I heard the skeptics give is uh, what's called in philosophy, the causal pairing problem or the interaction problem. How could an immaterial soul interact with a physical body? And, you know, they, they say this is impossible. Well, there, there are various situations. In the first place, their understanding of what substance dualism entails may be wrong. They, they kind of have this Cartesian dualism in mind. There's a soul. There's two separate substances. There's the soul and the body, and they interact. I myself take more of a, a metaphysical Thomistic or Aristotelian view where the, the physical body is an actual mode of the soul itself. So they're, they're already linked, and there's no pairing problem because the there's the they're one in the same the body and the soul are one in the same and that's just a, a mode of the soul um but yeah even if you take the cartesian thing there are responses to this and i gave about four of them there's you know the view that there's a metaphysical grid be, um that links the soul and and the body and that sort of thing so yeah that everything that they mentioned there there are um responses to that that i just don't think from what i've heard of the skeptics they've even considered whether those hypotheses would work and explain the same data so yeah that they, they are confusing imp from neuroscience we just get empirically equivalent hypothesis competing hypotheses you you can't use the empirical evidence from neuroscience to adjudicate 
this hypothesis is better than this one. It requires philosophical or logical argumentation um, in order to, to make that adjudication. And I don't think the skeptics recognize that properly or fully. To put it another way, uh, it's just neuroscience by its nature and you know, subject matter, neuroscience isn't capable of really showing um, or demonstrating uh, certain things, right? Uh, over to move over to moral theory, could could neuroscience ever show us, uh, you know, what moral theory is normative, or what our epistemic duty is, or something like that, right? Yeah, I would say so, uh, Mac. Um. I thought that entire conversation was interesting about like how they all defined consciousness differently. Yeah. So there was a sense in which like they all recognize it's there, but their definitions vary because well, it's like it's not fully comprehensible. Like it it doesn't make sense in a matu uh in a naturalistic point of view for us to have something called consciousness. So. Matthew said uh, it's a fuzziness sitting on top of the mind. So I was like, wait, that that doesn't make sense. Um, what, what's a fuzziness? Um, but but what, what got me was that David said that he doesn't believe that consciousness is real because there's no definition. And I thought that's that's just bad epistemology. You don't you don't make a statement like that. Like just because you don't like there's no definition of something that you know exist or that you have a concept of, that doesn't mean that that thing doesn't exist. So I just thought that was like, like inconsistent epistemology and it kind of exposed how like even appealing to science as the end all be all methodology, it just doesn't even give them the answers that they're trying to say science gives them. Yeah. I've got, um two two questions or two issues that I kind of notice if if I'm allowed to yeah 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 go ahead all right so so the first one is kind of a general assumption and it re it's related to this substance dualism issue but it, it's also more general where I the skeptics kind of notice you know when it comes to supernatural versus natural mechanism the issue of mechanism always comes up it's, it's one of Andrew's um, favorite issues and he's like you know you guys can't explain the mechanism to me so until you do that I can't get it and I, I think that this rests upon a hidden implicit assumption of causal determinism um, you know, everything must have a series of instrumental causes temporally prior prior to the the effect and that sort of thing and that's what they're looking for but they they totally miss that philosophers of action have things like basic actions, and that, that's what I think miracles are. Um, you know, miracles could be a basic action of God. There aren't any instrumental causes and effects in the chain. It's an immediate action and that sort of thing. But, yeah, I'm just interested at the panel. Did you, did you guys pick up on that assumption of causal determinism on the part of skeptics, and what do you make of that? Um, and then after we do that, I'll, I'll give my second thing, which is, geared towards intelligent design because that was they, they referenced my work on that but yeah let's start with the causal determinism yeah i, I caught the uh the emphasis on identifying mechanisms but i just didn't it jumped out at me but i didn't parse it out as clearly as you just did that was that's a good point 
Anyone else have anything on that? Or I thought it was well said. Uh, Mac, you good or? Yeah, I, I, uh, you said it better than I could ever have said it. <laughs> All right, cool. All right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, the, the third and last point that I wanted to mention. So they referenced me directly about my notion of how we identify miracles, and I use Dembski's specified complexity to to do this because I. I, I don't like as David Palman mentioned you know don't get in don't mention the supernatural unless you have to well guess what I don't think we have to forget about this supernatural natural divide I think what we should be asking is is a given event uh, intelligently designed by God for a given purpose and we can use specified complexity to identify that so you know the complexity part is obvious is it uh, an improbable event, um, you know, an infrequent event to occur given the laws of nature and that sort of thing. And then the specification is where the religious context comes in, you know, to, to give it those two components and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, the, the fundamental thing here is I, I think that specified complexity work. Um, there are warranted criteria or a set of tools by which we can use to identify, hey, this event is intelligently designed through through the specification element designed by who? By God, he's the intelligent agent, and he's doing it for a certain purpose if certain criteria are met. Um, and that's enough. We don't need to adjudicate on whether it's supernatural or natural. And, you know, they, they the skeptics kind of had some misunderstandings as to what it means for something to be complex. Um, I, I don't think they really understood what the work that goes into that Dembski has put in to establishing those probabilities. Um, and there's something else. Uh, sorry, I'm forgetting. Yeah, real, real quick for clarification. This is this is on the part where they're trying to wonder how they can detect the supernatural. Yeah, uh, on miracles and that sort of thing. I, I gave specified complexity. For, for the most part, the skeptics went off on irreducible complexity, which just had nothing to do with my my theory at all and you know they they kind of brought up the thesis of co-option to go against that and say well improbable things happen all the time and we can propose that some mechanism some organism had another purpose or something like that like you know the kenneth miller the the mouse trap you take something out and you can use it as a tie clip or something but in the first place b he's responded to that there there's a counter but yeah it was just totally irrelevant to my point um about specified complexity. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to open it up um, to the Christians here. And th do you think there's any merit to putting aside, you know, this event is supernatural versus natural, that these terminology didn't exist, and, you know, there's just signs and wonders in biblical times, and we can maybe apply specified complexity to identify, well, this event in particular, the resurrection of Jesus, that was an event designed by God to authenticate Christianity or something like that. Um, yeah, what do, what do you guys think in general about that? Yeah, and also just just this is my last question as well is I, I wanted did want to address that and uh, basically also maybe give a summary of how can how can you detect the supernatural? You know, uh, hit that as well, uh, and we'll start with Kevin on this one. Right. Uh, do you mean detect the supernatural and present? circumstances like in my daily life type is yeah that, that that as well that would be great too i mean um, hit it from from every angle 
Right. Well, I, I'm going to maybe give the skeptics uh, a bit here and say uh, the, the daily experience thing of Christians uh, isn't as easy to epistemically justify, especially to, you know, for another or a third party. I'm not sure it's supposed to be. Um, we, we definitely uh, want to uh, pursue knowledge and, and certainty as much as possible. Um, sometimes we can be right without being justified. Um, so it, it, it is really hard for me to think of uh, a method that would be convincing to a skeptic regarding claims about what I think God is leading me into, you know, this week. All right. And, and I think that's a, I think that's okay because I don't think that overall the Christian worldview claim, you know, rests on depending, uh, rests on uh, demonstrating that I'm trying to get at. It. it does, it does rest more on historical events like the resurrection. Um, but that takes us outside of the repeatability of science. But I think we've already discussed why science isn't the only thing and that it itself uh, depends on uh, abstract rationality or, or philosophy. And besides, I don't think anyone really wants to rule out all the humanities, social sciences, other um, disciplines besides hard science. Anyhow, we haven't even got to that. Um, not a very direct answer. Maybe, maybe come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, remind me what we were talking about again. Uh, well, Dale had posed a question and then I followed it up with another question. So he was right. It was about, about detecting, question. detecting, uh, I, I got, was, I got, yeah, it was detecting something like the resurrection through um, Dembski's explanatory filter. Um, yeah, so well, one interesting thing about Dembski's uh, explanatory filter is that it see like it gets a lot of criticism. People will be like, uh, you know, they'll point out some issue or problem with it here or there, but those same people will never propose an alternative way of detecting design while still believing that we have a way of detecting design. And so what I always want to say like, is if you reject Dembski's explanatory filter, that's fine. But if you think that there's a way of detecting design, then you've got to give me a better um, you know, way of doing it than this. And I've seldom seen that. So I have a lot of respect for um, Dembski's work in this regard. And I mean, it still, you know, it still requires you know, a lot of um, having some bugs worked out and stuff. But I think Dembski is on the right track with it. Uh, regarding applying that to something like the resurrection, that is not um, something that I've seen uh, proposed before. I'd have to give some more thought to that. But it does seem to be that, in a way, you're still appealing to the supernatural because it seems like you want to say that God raised him from the dead through, um, you know, in detecting that through specified complexity. I'm still not sure how that would not um, be appealing to the supernatural because you're bringing God into the picture to perform a miracle. So. I might have to hear you explain that more, but at least as I was hearing you talk about it before, it sounded like I'm, I'm not sure how that's not appealing to the supernatural. Um, so, yeah, sorry if that's 
went off the rails a little bit, but that's those are my thoughts. Uh, Ke- uh, well, not Kevin. Uh, Matt, I haven't heard from you yet <laughs> on this one. Yeah, yeah. My 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 problem is that when someone says, "Okay, prove the supernatural to me," but they're also a materialist or a naturalist, like to me that doesn't sound like it even makes sense because even for the sake of argument, if something happened that I would call supernatural, to them it would still be a natural thing that they don't understand. So again, it depends on the person asking, do they have a category of supernatural things or do they simply just believe that everything that happens in the universe and the universe is a huge place there are things that happen in other galaxies that we would call supernatural because we don't understand how does that even happen um and this is true so i just find the question in itself a bit uh like it doesn't make sense if someone has already said they're they're a naturalist like if you already put your flag down somewhere and said all there is is this nat like the the universe naturally came about. Uh, I, I don't see how I can answer your question. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you know, guys, we're wrapping up. Um, I, I think we covered as much as we can. I don't want to beat a dead horse, <laughs> but I do uh, want to give the skeptics one question <clears throat> to ask the panel. Uh, there's not going to be a follow-up. There's not going to be a discussion on it, but I do want you to give one question if you'd like, you don't have to. Uh, and I'll let David Johnson roll that out because he did mention having a question earlier. So one question, uh, panel will, will give a quick answer and then we'll move on straight to the next skeptic and his question. David, let me just clear it up. I wasn't really asking to ask a question. I was just uh, wondering if any of them wanted to ask us a direct question since you were um, uh, talking about or wondering about some of the things that we said. Okay. Well, do you have a question that you would like to pose to the to the group? Well, I would. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll get, uh, take Mac uh, in the last statement uh, that he made it seemed like uh, it, you know i've heard him do this before it feels like a dismissal of the challenge so he doesn't have to think about it to say oh well you know you materialists don't believe in the supernatural anyway so why should i have to explain the supernatural to you I, you would never accept a supernatural event okay write us off that way if you like but when i was a christian christian and i'm pretty sure that uh, andrew would say the same thing uh when we were christians we didn't accept most claims of the supernatural uh heck i don't i don't know very many christians who accept every supernatural claim and so even christians want to know okay how do we determine if this is supernatural you still have to have an answer for that and you can't just write it off as saying oh well, you guys don't believe in uh non-natural uh possibilities because even when we did and even though others do they still have the same questions, and the question deserves an answer. Can't be dismissed. Okay. Um, I don't believe I'm dismissing it. I'm just saying, like, is there a category that you have? Because I have a category for supernatural things. But if you're a materialist, then you don't. So, so do you get what I'm saying? I'm not dismissing it. I'm yeah, just but, saying but that. You're, writing, you're writing us off as, well, if I proved it, you wouldn't believe it. 
And I, I just think that that's a way of you not answering the question. So you're not going to bother to prove it and you're not going to give us the chance to believe it or disbelieve it. But ignore us. Ignore us. Answer <laughs> for the Christians. No, no, no. But right. it's uh, okay. Just answer well, for the Christians who have the David, same question. All right. So that that's David's question. Um, I'll let Mac get it. Uh, then Andrew will be very next after he answers it. Okay. And the all right. Panel can, um, the panel can give their thoughts too. Yeah, I want everyone to give their thoughts. Like, you don't have to like think, like give my exact same answer. But I just think for myself when someone says, "Okay, I'm a materialist, and this is all like the I'm, I'm a naturalist, and therefore you need to prove so something supernatural to me." I don't think it's a dismissal to say, "Okay, if you don't even have a category for that, then there's no there's nothing that that can appear that that would like." I'm just saying that the question is meaningless, and you can ask meaningless questions. It's like saying, "Okay." Prove to me the that blue is green. I was like, okay, if you don't have a category for green, then I can't I can't even begin to. So it's not a dismissal. It just doesn't make sense to me, and I don't think it ever will unless someone says, okay, I am not a materialist, and then I can go about. We can have a discussion then. Yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe I would modify that and ask, well, what, what would the criteria be that would clearly distinguish for you uh, between natural and supernatural? If, and then they may say, well, no, that's your job. But um, I think I would want to at least ask that. That would be fair to at least ask that. Yeah, I, I think that's helpful. It's always, um, you know, when a skeptic wants to ask me for evidence or something for um, the existence of God or for something miraculous, uh, it always is important to have, you know, clear from the start what counts, right? Because if we don't have that established, then discussing the specific contents just isn't going to matter. So, uh, you know, taking it back then to that next step is I think it's important to define uh, a miracle clearly. And so uh, I like to define it as uh, an act of God that cannot be explained by reference to um, natural causes or events. And so um, that gives us, I think, when we come across something that is very resistant to or defies explanation by known material or physical uh, processes, natural processes, something like that, then we have a good reason to begin considering the possibility of a miracle. And if you add to that some kind of um, religious context, right? Uh, so like in the case of Jesus, right, we have uh, predictions that he's going to rise from the dead. We have statements that this is a vindication of him as uh, a prophet uh, and a messenger from God. Uh, then we have uh, much more reason to take a miracle hypothesis seriously. So I think those two criteria are important. And of course, that's not begging the question against the skeptic because we're not saying that has happened. But I think that's a useful criterion uh, for determining a miracle. And if the skeptic wants to reject that, then I'm going to ask him for a better criterion. Yeah, I would follow that real quick to uh, give my opinion here. Uh, I would simply give the skeptic a blue crown and a yellow crown and say, hey, put them together. <laughs> you know, um, and by the way, David, my definition of miracles is better than yours. Uh, 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 Dale, do you got anything on that or, or can we move on to Andrew? Yeah, I think we can move on. Okay. Andrew, uh, one question. Sir. Fair enough. I can't even hear you, Andrew. I'm off mute. Um, can you hear me now? You're very low. 
Let's try go. it this way. Does there that work go. better? Much better. Okay. Uh, first, apologies for the uh, couple of times that I was off mute. I was out for a run. Um, I dropped the Skype connection, and when I dialed back in, uh, I had not properly hit mute. So it's apologies. Fine. I, I hit it. I hit it for you too. So. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. So Dale actually uh, said something ab about uh, about methodology uh, a couple of minutes ago, and it was something that I was very interested in, and I missed exactly what Dale said. So my whole question is just uh, to have him repeat what he said. Will you just repeat uh, what you said about methodology? Um, so are you talking about like methodology with respect to identifying the miracles? I think that was the last Yeah, question. Yeah, because I think you were responding to my complaint that there's, uh, uh, there's often, uh, you know, there's, there's a claim of some miracle, right? Some supernatural intervention and, uh, and, and by supernatural intervention for purposes of this conversation, what I mean is, uh, that sort of intervention that, uh, uh, where the miracle classically is something that breaks natural law rather than something like, um, uh, you know, God reaching down through natural processes or, or something of that nature, uh, something more like a John Lennox uh, miracle explanation. So um, I would like to know uh, why you think me asking for uh, some sort of methodology is, um, uh, is a problem. You seem to have an answer for that, and I missed what it was. Um, okay, so in terms of methodology, so I, I obviously agree in the supernatural and that sort of thing, but I think it's it's I've seen from personal experience with you with you guys personally that it, it's not helpful and it leads to meaningless debate that goes nowhere, and and that's why I sort of said I, I think we should approach it methodologically from the perspective of intelligent design. It is can we prove through specified complexity that this event is designed by God for a certain purpose or not? And I think that we can do that. We can apply those criteria and adjudicate at least that certain events exhibit specified complexity and that, um, you know, in the context of my 11 premise argument, this is how I get God as the intelligent agent specifically. But it, yeah, like, it's not even necessary to say, well, that has to be a supernatural God or something like that. Um, all that matters with specified complexity is that it's an intelligent agent that designed this event. Um, and that, you know, on, on that level, and I would get God in from my 11 premise argument. Premise one is that God exists and that would include his being supernatural and that sort of thing. Um, I got you. So the thing... Were, were you more asking about the mechanism issue then? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was. So um, it seems like so I missed part of what you said there, and um, maybe you were maybe you were replying to mechanism. Um, so, uh, but you used you called my name, and then I missed what mm. you said, and so apologies. No, uh, yeah, that was that was on the mechanism thing then. Yeah, so I, I was just saying, seem to assume that there has to be. You know, causal determinism is true. There has to be a series of instrumental causes and effects and that sort of thing. And you don't see, you don't seem to recognize that there could be uh, what philosophers of action call basic or immediate actions uh, or simple actions and that sort of thing. And that's typically what Christians think God is doing. A miracle is a simple or 
immediate action um, on God's part. So there wouldn't be any intervening mechanisms to to appeal to. It, it's the category mistake. So that's what I said there. Okay, I'll look forward to continuing that conversation uh, on another in another format. Cool. Oh. A challenge has been made. Andrew, you can mute your mic now. Say that again. I'm sorry. Can you mute your mic now? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, is there anybody else on the skeptic side that had one question? I'll take that as a no. Well, gentlemen, uh, we are done for the day. I appreciate everybody for being here, and I as promised, it's not a three-hour discussion. So uh, just one more thing uh, before I let you guys go. I just want you to plug in uh, whatever you want to plug in right now as we go around. Uh, I'll start with Paulman as he started off. Uh, you know, give your website one more time. And, and you know, everybody subscribe to this channel and subscribe to Proselytize or Apostatize. Uh, we have great discussions and content over there as well. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'll let you guys plug in your own, own bit for the last uh, – part here uh paul go ahead all right well if you like seeing russell and me bash each other around then you can see a lot more of that on our podcast proselytize or apostatize uh, also uh youtube channel so you can subscribe over there uh if you like listening to me give long dry talks about epistemology i have a whole video series coming up on that on my uh, youtube channel faith because of reason so uh feel free to check it out over there kevin yeah, I uh, I didn't want to depart without uh, just saying a couple more positive things about the, um, the atheist uh, effort. I thought it was well conceptualized, it was well moderated. It, you know, it was it, it flowed well. Um, I appreciated uh, basically that the realists. All right, that's something big to have in common. You know, it's a refreshing when you. You know, when you encounter other, say, continental philosophy and postmodernism, this sort of thing, that's just wishy-washy stuff. Uh, we actually have a, <clears throat> at least epistemically more in common with skeptics, maybe, than, <laughs> uh, than other worldviews in that regard. Um, also, I didn't want, uh, you know, a lot, there was a lot of pushback, as there should be, about the, the nature and role and domain and reach and scope of science. But uh, I would hate for that to come out as a, you know, down on science sort of mood. Uh, I actually enjoyed some of the case studies they did, uh, you know, the sense of wonder that should come with science. And to us as Christians, investigating and enjoying the natural world, um, I enjoyed that. Um and I enjoyed some of the personal, you know, the personal aspects in which they shared things, uh, including, you know, because I haven't interacted with that group before uh, very much, you know, their own past Christian experiences. What was missing, though, just to be honest, uh, and I, I know they were, you know, they have, have probably much more to share about that, but and, and probably have that I've missed, but. What was missing was anything about uh, really Jesus Christ, the gospel, or repentance in 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 a serious sense. Um, but uh, that that's for another time, and um, I think we've already said you know some of the uh, 
to the critical analysis thing. So I'll leave off. So Kevin, like, where can we find you on uh, on questioning Christianity? Yeah, uh, that that's on YouTube and Facebook, and we do basically just every other Monday. Um, I guess we'll come up again this this Monday night, six thirty, and um, we don't have a, a, a real far-reaching uh, series plan right now. So check it out, see what happens. All right, <laughs> Max, since you're unmuted, I'll I'll let you go next. Um, you can find me on Discus, uh, on the Skeptics and Seekers forum. I don't really have a YouTube channel or anything, but hopefully that's something that would be in the future, perhaps because like I feel like um, it's important that people understand each other, and so perhaps like even the question that David asked me, I feel like I could flesh it out better in a way that doesn't sound like I'm just dismissing him. Like I promise I'm not dismissing the question. Um, but yeah, just, uh, discus.com on the skept. I mean, you'll see me posting there. So just, uh, bother me or something. So yeah, that's it. Yeah. All right. Uh, Dale. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning, you guys can find me at realseekerministries.wordpress.com. Um, or on YouTube, I've got a bunch of shows, Real Seekers. Um, next week I have, uh, with David, we've got, uh, David J here and Marvin. We've got Dr. Lydia McGrew coming on to discuss her maximal facts approach to the resurrection, um, as well as she's got a new book on the Gospel of John. Um, so yeah, if you guys are interested in that, check that out. Um, yeah, and just closing thoughts. Yeah, I... I Thought it was interesting listening to the skeptics show um, back when I watched it and picked up some interesting parts as to how they understand epistemology and, and science and how it functions. Um, trying to see like their reasoning behind why, you know, they have certain standards and why they think that other standards of evidence don't count or don't qualify for them. So yeah, that was interesting, and I hope that. I lived up, we lived up to David J's uh, request that the Christians respond charitably and try to show that they listened to what they had to say and responded accordingly. All right. Well, again, guys, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I enjoyed the conversation as well. Uh, yeah, I didn't have to do much. You guys did it mostly for me. So, <laughs> um, again, thank you. Uh, and yes, yeah, stay tuned for more exciting content on skeptics and seekers. Uh, be ready for a finale that David Johnson has planned out for us. Uh, yeah, so stay tuned.